Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. We're improbably, against all logic and reason, we've made it to February, and we're just going to chat about some films, what we've seen in that there month. Uh, I'm Scott, and I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And we will just get cracking by jumping straight into The King's Man. Drew, what's that all about? Yes, well, 2014's King's Man, The Secret Service was a, a decent romp. A comic book action film with a number of good performances, a huge sense of fun, and a number of welcome digs at classism and movie tropes, notably Bond films, even if it itself indulged in quite a few. The sequel, Kingsman the Golden Circle, was terrible, but still managed some humour and some likeable performances. While there was a gulf in quality, one of the things they had in common was a complete lack of taking themselves seriously. Their stories of a clandestine independent spy agency taking extrajudicial action to protect the world saw them tackling Samuel L. Jackson's scenery-chewing tech mogul, ending with the heads of many of the world's heads of state exploding in multiple colours to the strains of Elgar's pomp and circumstance, and in a sequel, defeating Julianne Moore's crazed drug dealer with her robot dogs, soylent green hamburgers and imprisoned Elton John. In this unwanted prequel, which shows the origin story of the Kingsman, something that I don't believe anyone was asking for, the whole thing is entirely serious and involves World War I. You know, the real thing, in which millions of people really died, and which led to World War II, in which even more millions died. Director Matthew Vaughan returns, but notably, and perhaps the reason for such a change in tone, his screenwriting part in the last two films in Jane Goldman does not, the script this time being co-penned by former Stranger Things showrunner Cal... Oof, crikey. Cal Gadgetusek. I'm guessing at that. Um, my apologies if you're listening and I've butchered it, but then, your film so I don't care. Uh, here, some shadowy definitely not Spectre Honest Group wants Europe to go to war and millions to die so that England will be destroyed to make up for 700 years of the English monarchy subjugating Scotland. I really don't know where to begin with that. Whether it's the fact that it was the United Kingdom and not England that was a belligerent in the First World War, that any invading army would be unlikely to stop at the Scottish border, that it suggests a complete lack of knowledge of or interest in the complex history of Scotland and England that unlike Germany or Russia, the monarchy had little real power in the UK by this point, thankfully, or that the whole thing is just offensive and offensively stupid. Going to go with that one, I think, though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tying your fictional plot to real-world events, especially ones as significant as World War I, is dangerous at best. But it can be done. Even Wonder Woman managed it reasonably well. But that film sensibly kept its involvement around the edges of the conflict. But this film has the entire war as its plot. Honestly though, Scott, I don't really want to go much beyond this. The biggest problem with this film is it's so bloody boring. It's an absolute trudge. And it's strange because even the second film, there was a lot of fun in it. It had great performances too. It had Colin Firth, who's great fun. Taron Egerton, who's, I find really quite charismatic. I like Taron Egerton a lot. In this film, his character, or equivalent of his character, sort of, is played by Man With Face. I mean, I know he's got a name, but I didn't bother to to check it out. Matthew Good doing a not entirely terrible, but not great Scottish accent for some reason. And um, your man, Aaron Taylor... 
og så er jeg ikke altså eventyr. The guy from Kekas, I can't even get to the end of his name, he bores me so much. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing a really terrible Scottish accent for some reason. Ralph Fiennes is the founder of the Kingsman, is game enough, I guess, but he's far too good for this. But the real problem is just, it really, as I was saying a bit earlier, it takes itself so seriously. And in the strangest ways too, it's got... So it starts off playing with the fact that the three um, grandsons of Queen Victoria, Kaiser Wilhelm, George the... Oh God, fifth, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget now because I don't care. George uh, <laughs> V and Tsar um, Nicholas all looked very, very similar. They were cousins, all looked very similar. They grew up together. And so they're all played by Tom Hollander. And I thought, oh, that might be quite fun. And then they do nothing with it at all. So, <laughs> oh, so that, that, that was good. And then they have Rasputin because, well, of course, because nobody's got any um, imagination. And Rasputin is for some reason played by Reese Fins. Uh, badly. <laughs> the obvious choice. Yes, the obvious choice, yes. Um, I mean, it's got more to do than being a lizard in that recent um, Spider-Man <laughs> yeah. film. But, you know, honestly, I think that performance was better. Um, <laughs> and the film certainly was. Uh, but he's playing Rasputin, who... It's a really weird choice here. At the time Rasputin was around, he was... Well, he had a lot of political enemies. Um, he was considered to have a lot of influence on the Russian royal family. How much he had, not sure, probably quite a lot though, but like there were a lot of people trying to besmirch him and a lot of people saying he was all sorts of deviants and things by which they meant gay. Um, which I don't believe there's actually a lot of evidence for. He was also accused of several rapes. There's a bit more suggestion that those were true. But he was like he was there was legendary amounts of um evidence for the fact that he was really into women. Mm. Um, <laughs> but the the homosexuality thing, and that was trying to besmirch him because that was considered a, a big slight at the time. And it lasted for a few years. Still some people think it may be true. Who cares? But for some reason that's in this film. The suggestion <laughs> that he, he likes pretty little boys and stuff um, and it's really weird in 2022 to have a film that has that in a character to suggest the you know very very old and fortunately mostly outdated in most people's eyes now idea that um, homosexuality is something to do with deviance and often paedophilia yeah uh, that's a creepy and weird thing to have in a film also in this silly comic book film about you know robot dogs <laughs> as was seen in the last one and Elton John being kept as a piano-playing slave for <laughs> Julia Moore's entertainment. I can't believe this film's in the same series. <laughs> I mean, I thought the sequel, the first sequel was bad, but oh dear. But yeah, so you've got Reese Evans playing Rasputin. And at some point, he starts licking Ralph Fiennes' leg. In a... <laughs> honestly, and I think deliberately, sort of cunnilingus-like way almost, like suggesting of that... But the film also at the same time, as well as like the problems I have with the the deviancy thing, and the suggesting that that's you know that and homosexuality are somehow related, which is ridiculous nonsense, of course. But also it, the film seems suggesting in this film another way is taking itself seriously is actually Rasputin's actually magic because he cures this wound in a leg. It's a strange film, Scott. I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, 
And then strange things too, like this this guy who's definitely not Blofeld in running this, definitely not Spectre group, who when Rasputin gets taken out of the picture, sends in Lenin to help bring about the end of the the Russian nobility and take Russia out of the war, which is a stranger number. This film, because it doesn't have any interest in history. And, and like, see, if this was as daft as the first film, I wouldn't care, right? Yeah. But it's not. It's taking itself so seriously. There's no humour in this film at all. Or interest or good performances for the most part, actually. So there's not, not a lot going on in this film that I like. In fact, nothing. <laughs> but maybe Jimon Hunsu, who's Ralph Fiennes butler sort of thing but he ends up taking up the first role of Merlin which in the other two films is played by uh, Mark Strong who A can do a good Scottish accent and is B brilliant because he's Mark Strong <laughs> but at least Jim Hunsu has a like, base level of charisma he's generally quite yeah. likeable um, he's not got a great deal to do here he's quite likeable so that helps but um, where was it? Yeah, Lennon so apart from the fact that that it seems to take away from take the Blame for many things away from Tsar Nicholas, who, let's be scrupulously um, clear here, was a terrible, terrible person. Like, <laughs> one of the worst people. I mean, probably not as bad as Lenin, um, when you count back now, but, you know, terrible person. Uh, so, they seems to be taking away from his agency and anything that happened. And then, because it brings in Lenin as some pawn of some Blofeld-like character, that's weird, because the the Russian Revolution may be the single most important political event of the 20th century. And then they make this a plot point in their really stupid film. And it's not actually, you know, this character has no agency. Lenin. <laughs> Lenin has no agency. It's, it's just, it's such a weird film. And then, uh, God, no, it's just, it's just bad. It's just so boring. Uh, everything's so serious. It's got Daniel Brühl in it, which means, of course, Daniel Brühl's wasted. <laughs> just a, a, a very special final FU. I dislike mid-credit scenes anyway, but the mid-credit scene in this film introduces Hitler. Um, good, good. Yeah, glad he's around. Yeah, that's what, again. The first film ends with the heads of state of the world popping like champagne corks or uh, firework colours, and Ed Elgar's pomp and circumstance. Right mm-hmm. after the tech mogul Samuel Jackson has been killed, um, it, it's it's a ridiculous film. And it knows it. This film is incredibly serious for the entire length of it. And then in the mid-credits scene has Lenin meeting Hitler. And that <laughs> both Lenin and Hitler work for um, the Spectre-like organisation. Avengers Assemble. Um. Yeah, it's... I mean, you can do alternate histories, but, you know, they have to sort of like be based on something. Uh, this is is kind of just offensive because it's like it's like you're dealing with real stuff where people died like like significant numbers of people died, yeah. And you're not doing anything interesting. It's like you're actually kind of taking away from the importance of everything else that happened. It's weird because I've not seen this, but it sounds like it's a twist on the plot from uh, Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows, where it's you know Moriarty's kind of engineering a a world war just to sell weapons. And yeah, it sounds like that is a much more coherent and sensible take on it rather than whatever this is trying to do um yeah so well, yeah, I, I, say, I haven't um, seen this glad i haven't <laughs> no it, it's absolute garbage it really is an absolute trudge to get through it's so boring yeah i, I kind of I, uh, 
I don't remember that bothering me while I played Game of Shadows. I quite enjoyed that game. But actually, that kind of works because that's sort of still a thing. The old military industrial complex thing, you know, yeah, exactly, creating yeah. wars. So actually, you know, 19th century or early 20th century, I don't see why that would necessarily be any different. Um, yeah. That works. This, though, it's like it's creating a world war just so that people will invade England. Like, what? Yeah. Nuts. <laughs> what? I, I know. Oh, God, no. Scott is so bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, and just what a, what a terrible waste of some of the cast because we've talked a few times about Ralph Fiennes. He's not always the the best guy, and sometimes he's tuned the scenery. Sometimes in a good way. In Bruges is the prime example of that. But then I think we all. All three of us liked him a lot as M in the Bond films. Yeah, uh, he's actually pretty sympathetic in The Dig. We talked about last year that Netflix film about Sutton yeah. Who. I actually quite like Ralph Fiennes in here. He's doing his best, but he's got so little to work with. It's a terrible script. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, everybody else is just because uh, I don't know why they're there. And I'm so fed up with films having Daniel Brühl in them and not remembering to use Daniel Brühl, who's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a it's a strange and terrible film, and it's it's a film that I don't believe anybody was asking for, and also seems completely detached from the other films. It's honestly the strangest thing because other films are cartoonish, and this is so kind of poor faced and and dealing with such serious stuff. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a mess. I'm <laughs> certainly glad I'm not going to catch up with this one anytime soon. Now I still mean to go back to the first one because I do like Tarnakin a lot. So uh, the first one sounds like a well has sounded for years like something I would actually enjoy, but we never quite got around to it. But uh, yeah, oh, I'll not, probably just stop with that one. No? no, none of them. That's uh, oh, no, probably why I didn't want to watch this because I wouldn't have the uh, the full <laughs> intricate backstory of, <laughs> for all this. Yes, that's so. not there. Like actually, <laughs> the few sort of references to. The other films, they feel kind of shoehorned in, sort of fan service, but there's not... I honestly don't think fans... This film has fans, or the series has fans in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went back to watch, because I'd intended to see this at the cinema uh, when it came out. It's on Disney Plus now. See it at the cinema when it came out. Boxing Day, I think. So I'd watched the, the other two films beforehand first. I liked the original slightly less than I did before, and I... I wouldn't say I liked the Golden Circle slightly more. I disliked it slightly less. Um, but yeah, it's still really entertaining. Mark Strong is fantastic. The first one's got Michael Caine in it. Small role, but you know, it's Michael Caine. Generally, that's good. Yeah. Mark Strong's amazing. Uh, Colin Firth, of, he's an actor kind of like Hugh Grant. Um, and sort of they were, they were always put together for a long time, like the late 90s in particular, sort of like... One man was a cheap man, Hugh Grant, and then after a while, um, Colin Firth <laughs> sort of surpassed him, and I guess it was the other way around. Um, yeah. But yeah, I've come to like I've come to like Hugh Grant. I've come to like Colin Firth quite a lot, quite a lot more than Hugh Grant. Um, he's got much more range. But so yeah, there's actually a lot to like, and that's a lot of fun. Tarnak is really engaging on screen, and then, but it, it's cartoonish because it's got Samuel Jackson as a sort of tech mogul. A thing with a lisp and he's chewing the scenery and people's heads are exploding and there's like crass anal sex jokes and things and and then then and this it's like no it's world war one actual world war one caused actually by these people oh god what are you doing how is this the same series oh, it's a strange that that's it you get sometimes you get a tonal whiplash within films you tend not to get a tonal whiplash within like an entire franchise and this is like <laughs> the biggest example that i think i've ever seen 
Yeah. <laughs> it's such an awful film. Although, really, for all the, like, the ethical issues I have with what they talk about and how they do it, it's like, honestly, it's just the fact that it's so boring is the problem. Yeah. Uh, no. Very much to be avoided. <laughs> so, I, I, I have told people about a film that was boring. You're going to tell us about a film that is... Well, I don't think boring's a word you could apply to it, Scott. Yes. There are many adjectives. Boring's probably not one of them. Yes. Yes, we're talking about uh, Jean-Pierre Junet's latest, uh, Big Bug, which is a science fiction outing coming to us courtesy of Netflix. No, stop, come back. This one <laughs> might not be awful, uh, which would bring their running total to one. One. Uh, <laughs> after all, Jean-Pierre Junet gave us the likes of The City of Lost Children and Amelie, and so surely there's some benefit of the doubt left, even accounting for Alien Resurrection. Uh, here, Big Bug rattles us forward 20 to 30 years to a suburbia that's at once very different and much the same as now, with rows of very uh, externally similar looking homes, encasing a lot of the same human dramas as we have today, just with added robot helpers. From the likes of the simple cleaning and surveillance drones to Claude Perron's Monique, the robot maid, or indeed the entirely evil-looking and much more advanced Yonix android things, played by a cross between Francois Leventhal and a set of sentient oversized dentures, who <laughs> definitely aren't going to overthrow humanity and imprison them. Oh no, they've overthrown humanity and imprisoned them, uh, locking people in their homes. One such home belongs to Elsa Zyberstein's Alice, who's recently divorced and had been hosting her new lover Stefan de Groots Max and his son Heliotonatz Leo when her ex Josef Hadji's Victor has showed up to bring their adopted daughter Mary Solfertan's Nina home uh, with his new lover slash old secretary Claire Justice Jennifer in tow. Added to this clearly volatile mix of characters is their neighbour Isabel Nantes Francois, visiting when the doors seal. As such, after a brief introduction to the characters, the rest of the narrative is broadly, or perhaps nominally, driven by the human's attempt to escape their home, although it is mostly about exploring the character interactions that swing between charming, prickly, annoying and amusing in more or less equal proportions. There's also a B-plot where the house robots, not part of the Yonix Rebellion, decide to become more human in order to appear less threatening to her cast, led in this endeavour by Victor's old AI creation, Einstein, voiced by Andre Rousselet. So, a lot of this is less about the dangers of artificial intelligence and instead about what it means to be human and what is worthwhile about the human experience in this world that's, uh, in a lot of the more important senses, not all that far extrapolated from our current one. How much it has to say about it at the end of the day is rather up for debate, but at least the effort to ask the question is appreciated. I am perhaps surprised to see how negatively received this has been, um, admittedly just by looking at the aggregate star ratings and the like. I suspect any review of more than a couple of sentences will acknowledge the same things I'm going to, like the strong directorial style and the visuals that instantly mark this out as a Junet film. Uh, shallow as it is, there's not many scenes in this film that aren't visually interesting, uh, particularly the lovely details on Einstein or the overarching weirdness of Yonix and their obvious joy taken in humiliating humans on what's implied to be a long-running TV show which you think might include people in their intention just a little bit sooner. Um, anyway, for an alleged budget of $13 million, this looks great with only a few ropey CG flourishes betraying that frugality. Uh, however, the question I was uh, left with immediately after watching this was essentially, what was this trying to be? And I'm not altogether sure that's the right question to be asking of it. There's certainly enough angles of attack to level at Big Bug. If it's a character piece, there's not enough characterization. If it's a drama narrative, there's not enough happening. If it's a comedy, there's not enough laughs. If it's about world building, there's not enough being told. Um, it's a lot easier to point at the stools it has fallen between than to identify exactly where it is. 
and part of me wishes I'd enjoyed it less so that I could say that it's left floating with the stools. So I will make a note of that for future less likeable hot messes. Still, I can't give a full-throated recommendation to Big Buck, uh, particularly if you're not already a fan of Jury's almost cartoonish style and whimsy. I, however... Am. So this goes quite far on charm alone, even if it's not his finest outing. In that regard, the middling to negative review scores are, I suppose, accurate. But if you have Netflix already, I'd encourage you to give this one a look in. You might not think it to be quite your cup of tea, but it's worth taking a swig of to find out for sure. Yes, um, it's a Netflix sci-fi film. That that comes with baggage. <laughs> yes. Um, Smelly baggage. The upside, you know... It's not the Cloverfield Paradox. It's not Mute. It's not the Titan. That was another Netflix joint, mm. wasn't it? The Titan. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I ill-advisedly caught up with a few years after you and Craig had no. um, talked about it on the podcast. And oh, oh God, God no! Um, what have I done to myself? <laughs> what fool am I? Um, this is a Genet film rather than a. Netflix sci-fi film, so you know, for that let us all be entirely grateful. <laughs> yes. It is undeniably interesting. It is distinctive. It's quite funny in parts. It also massively got me on side fairly early on by having an Amstrad CPC in it. So, you know, but I was, as far as I was concerned after that point, I couldn't do a lot of wrong. Yes. Um, I know that, you know, the, the iconic... Um, old computer scene in that little uh, the teenage girl's bedroom is the original Macintosh um, and many people's eyes were drawn to that but no, for me Amstrad CPC, there we go this film knows what it's about um, and I believe those <laughs> were quite popular in France as well so there's a good reason yeah. for it being there it is odd I think the perhaps the biggest problem I had with it is like well, apart from its rather labored attempts at youth speak hmm. yeah. that today would be if it was set today it would be full of yeats and on fleeks and what's not um <laughs> so the nonsense words they came up that this teenage boys like yeah i don't know it's, i don't know you think that went anywhere and yeah. there are a few bits that that sort of went like that in the, the script that, yeah 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 i sort of see what you're doing but it's it's just a bit naff it wasn't like like terrible it was just like naff so that turned me off a wee bit. It's um, yeah, it's, it looks remarkable. And if it really was made in such a low budget, then that's incredible. Yeah, it's um, uh, again Wikipedia. Who knows for sure? But if it is, if that is correct, then it's a hell of an achievement. Just the set design on it is uh, pretty remarkable stuff. Yeah, um, because there's clearly a lot of effects. I mean, some of them aren't the best, but still on the design of Einstein the, the amount oh, yeah, of detail that's in that little bits in his head plus the feet and the eyes and the fact that like, the whole face is made of individual elements and things yes yeah, yeah. that character alone must have cost millions you'd have thought <laughs> yeah you would think yeah so yeah I mean it looks impressive it, yes yeah, distinctly a Genet film there's some really good performances in it too your man Leventhal that, that's ridiculous and I loved it yes <laughs> um, the, the, sort of the performance and the, the overtop over the top character design as well. Yeah, it did make me think a wee bit of the like facial, like the same sort of feature because you know Jeanne really cast for interesting faces. Yes, yes. Uh, that's why Dominique uh, Pignon, who has been in like several of his films, he's only got a small role here, but he's in that just because he was always in his films because he has such like an interesting face. Yeah, um, so he remind, Francois Leventhal reminded me of the. The actor that plays the old guy in the city of Lost Children. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, <laughs> so I had that sort of similar face. I thought, was it him? Because he looks much older than Francois Lavender actually is, but like, no, it's, that, that was like 20 years ago, that film, maybe more now. 25, actually, I think. Um, so it's not, it's not him, but yeah, it had that sort of look. It's like really interesting faces, which is quite a good thing to see in his films. Uh, it looks amazing, quite funny. The biggest problem I had was it... It was like making comments about human nature and um, sort of riffing on stuff from today, like societal trends, cultural trends and stuff, and like kind of extrapolating them a bit. I just didn't feel like it was actually saying anything. It felt to me, maybe I'm wrong, but the way it read to me was more like, not, here's a comment we're making on human society or the way we're going or something. It's more like, wouldn't it be funny if... Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah. Wouldn't it be weird if these things happened rather than like, here, here's an extrapolation of what's going to happen and like the, this is what we've, the, the rods we've created thrown back or something. It's like, wouldn't it be funny if and here's a bunch of weird crap that's happening because it's quite entertaining. Which is valid, but you know, yeah. kind of less satisfying. So yeah, that's that's my biggest problem was, was that. It's like I didn't really think I actually had anything to say. But I, I enjoyed it. It was still mm. not the best one I've ever seen, but far from the worst. It's definitely not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But I'm just I'm quite glad it exists because, you know, films tend not to look like this or act like this or sound like this. Um, so it's, it is definitely a distinctive thing in its own. So, yeah, it's, because it is so particular, though, it's kind of difficult to recommend because it really, really isn't for everybody. Um, Genet's kind of an acquired taste. Yeah, and and this may not be the the place to start with uh, with it if you have any questions about whether you may like that kind of thing. As I say, it being on Netflix does kind of make it easier to uh, suggest people give it a look in. Um, it'd be a different proposition if it was advising people to go to a cinema and uh, yeah. all the rigmarole that that entails for it. Um, when it's just a click away, then. You know, it's worth taking a punt on. It's easier to recommend, but then again, you'd still be better off starting with, um, well, obviously, Amelie or City of Lost Children or something like that, yeah. um, and seeing if you like it, and then going to this, which I think would probably give you a bit more of a an easier run in to the man's style. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so certainly, overall, they're they're um, substantially uh, better films than this. Which is not to say that uh, uh, Big Bug is in any real regard bad, but as you say, uh, the same kind of concerns. I just couldn't really get a handle on what or what it was trying to say. If it was actually trying to say anything, or just having a, a just, it felt like it was a, there was a number of ideas in here, and none of them quite coalesced into any one overarching idea. They just all kind of bounced off each other a bit, and none of it kind of really developed anywhere. But not every film really needs to have that sort of message just to be enjoyable, and certainly on all, most other regards, it's really well acted, funny in places, bits of nice characterization in there, lots of lovely uh, character design on the, the, the androids and stuff, uh, little funny moments. So there's a lot to enjoy, and certainly for the two hours that it's with, uh, it flew by, and it's definitely worth, I thought, worth uh, worth watching in that regard, particularly if you, you're already a fan of Jeanne's uh, work. But yes. Completely agree. It's, it's difficult to say that this would be the place to start if you hadn't seen any of his, his uh, oh, no, no, prior definitely art. Um, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it, it's an interesting look. I just don't like it. So satisfied visually, because his films generally do. A right? few things tend to look like them. I mean, you may want to look at a white wall for a while afterwards because it's got all of the colours, like yes. all the way up. Um, 
But yeah, it's just, I don't, I didn't find like Kyle Dennis sort of satisfying, anything satisfying intellectually. Again, maybe I'm yes. reading it wrong, but it just, it really did feel like a, so it wouldn't it be funnier rather than I've got a point to make thing. Yeah, and it's it's certainly light-hearted enough. I mean, in any film that was attempting to be even remotely serious, the way the um, the Deus Ex Machina ending of it would uh, would have infuriated me in anything that was trying to be yeah. even remotely serious. But exactly. in this instance, works really well. It's incredibly funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly what I was going to say. It, was like, it feels like, you know, maybe they're trying to say sort of a hoist by your own petard thing or making some sort of comment about it. Although... Yeah, it's Deus Ex Machina, but it's more just struck me as like, we've got to end this somehow. We can't yes. leave it like this. How, what do we do? Yes. Um, rather than, yes, it being any sort of like particular attempt at anything special. Basically, that's like, uh, yeah. I guess we need to end this film. This will do. <laughs> yeah, interesting at least. Um, and, you know, you can do a lot worse than that. Absolutely. It's interesting and not boring. So there we go. That's <laughs> Those are bars that many things don't reach yes <laughs> witness the king's man <laughs> so we'll round things up uh, with a look at the worst person in the world then apologies in advance for any bad pronunciation of Norwegian names but I have no idea how to do it so I'll just give it my best go uh, <laughs> Joachim Trier's The Worst Person in the World is a romantic drama crossed with a coming of age tale though with that coming of age period shifted to somewhat later than is typical taking place a year or two either side of the psychological milestone of 30. The person coming of age, who may or may not be the person of the title, is Renata Rensvis Julie, a millennial unsure of what or who she should be. We meet her first as a medical student, before she leaves medicine to pursue psychology, loftily telling her mother that her passion is for the soul, not the body, and then eventually giving that up to become a photographer. But she also fancies being a writer, something perhaps mirrored in the film's format, composed of 12 chapters, a prologue and an epilogue, each of which feels like a complete, well, not a complete story, but a complete or at least cohesive idea or thought process, functioning in isolation, but also being an integral and progressing part of the overall whole. Julie's photography sees her start a relationship with one of her subjects before unceremoniously abandoning him at a party after meeting the much more interesting Axel. And there's Danielson Lee, an underground comic book artist 15 years or so senior, with whom she soon moves in. A combination of different desires and the fact that Julie doesn't really know what she does desire sees her leave Axel, in a scene both sad yet magical that, were it in a typical romantic comedy, would seem cloying and even twee. Yet here it reads as a, a visual personification of hope and the greener grass on the other side. That the grass isn't, as you might expect, greener. And Julie begins to realise that if any grass more verdant is to be found, she might find it inside of herself. Or at least that's where she'll find the grass greening stuff. <laughs> Look, I'm not a gardener, and I realise now I shouldn't have stretched this particular metaphor out this far, but here we are. I don't think my description so far is really doing the job of distinguishing this from any number of similar sounding films, but it really is different. There's an incredible honesty and reality to the characters, their actions and their speech, brought to life by an astonishingly good performance from Renzva and an almost equally good turn from Anders Danielson Lee's Axel, particularly when the artist is forced to face his past, his future and the summation of his own life and work. 
The film belies the notion that arbitrary milestones, such as turning 30, mean anything, and that anyone actually has any idea what they're doing at any age. And, rather, that we're all in a continuum, each moving at their own pace, learning from some mistakes, repeating others. In other words, it feels much closer to real life and less like a movie. Like real life, there's also quite a bit of humour, and some poking of fun at the concerns, and sometimes hypocrisies, of the middle class, as well as a reflection, albeit brief, on the differences in opportunities and expectations of Julie's female forebears. It's also beautiful, though I'm far too lacking familiarity with that city to say yay or nay to others' interpretations of its depictions, and how strong of a character Oslo itself is in the story, it is striking how clean and beautiful the city looks, yet how empty it often seems. And while I'll leave any meaning that may or may not have up to your own interpretation, I will just mention the wonderful soft light we enjoy in these northern latitudes, and which cinematographer Casper Tux has captured so well, leaving me yearning. For what? I don't know. Just generally yearning. Uh, it is a wonderful film. For the fjords. <laughs> Are you painting for the fjords? I'm painting for the fjords, yes. Before I shuffle off this mortal coil. <laughs> uh, uh, it is a wonderful film, though, and I thoroughly recommend it. Yes. Um, I watched this earlier today, and I've been trying to think of something cogent to say about it. And so far I've come up with, it's good. I liked it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yes, I, I'm not altogether sure I can add much more to what you've already said. Some tremendous performances in there. It's really well written. It's clever in a way that there's. It, it kind of feels like there's moments where it might just be coming down to being ordinary. Then it throws some kind of hand grenade in there, um, like the I think the scene you were, you were talking about where you know everything freezes, uh, which is a very simple effect, but worked really well. That kind of that one day of uh, imagined day of what it would be like somewhere else or the, or the scene where they're all tripping on magic mushrooms um, which <laughs> yes. you know, just perks things right back up again so yes there's, it's really engaging um, very easy to root for a character who I suppose at some point maybe she is feeling like she's the worst person in the world but clearly is not she's simply a person in the world uh, with the same uh, concerns and troubles and uh, struggles with all the rest of us so um, yes it's, it is just, just really cleverly done and um, really quite engaging very enjoyable stuff Yeah, it's quite interesting too because I'm not sure who that refers to if it refers to anyone and whether it's like a self-reflection or something because there is one character in the film who does describe themselves as the worst person in the world and it seems like that person is probably quite a nice person yeah um, <laughs> So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's, like, quite how we're meant to take that title, but, again, there's a lot of things I'm here kind of really up for interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. But what I just enjoyed about it so much is I do love films like this. It just it felt real. Yeah. The conversations feel like conversations people actually have, saying things that people actually say. in for the most part, words people would actually use. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, you can enjoy the sort of dialogue you get in films and it's, you know, it, it, the best stuff can leave white hot lines across your soul um, really incredible dialogue and stuff but sometimes it's nice just like hear people speak like people speak and yes. not like people speak in films and this is one of those films that just does that so well it just it feels the characters feel honest the way they interact with people feels honest um, even though people are being dishonest um, in terms of their actions um, yeah it just it feels like a, a it's a slice of life film in some ways too 
bit like a a real slice from a real life. Yeah. Um, and not just like a, a film character. So it makes it much more relatable in that way. Hmm. And yeah, a lot of that is just the, the performances, um, which are really universally excellent. But they're the two central roles, Axel and Julian, in particular, are just phenomenal. Yeah, really are. Yeah, I guess that's it then. <laughs> yes, I, I can't think of much else to say to it other than it's, it is the best film we've spoken of today and have done for probably the best film we've spoken about for some months. And uh, yes, definitely worth catching up with and uh, get it on your watch list if you've not done so already. Yeah, so one of three doesn't necessarily give it the praise that they ought to have. I'm glad no. you added that a little, <laughs> that little bit on the end there. Yes, it's the best one I've talked about in a while. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I'm not sure how well it'll stand up. I still would like to revisit it again, maybe a year. I feel it's a film I may um, develop more appreciation for in the future, actually. I like it an awful lot. Um, yeah, well, this is the director's, uh, as I was reading, it's the the last of his Oslo trilogy, which I've seen none of his other work to my recollections. So. No, I very much intend going to going back to check that out. Yeah, so we'll get that on the topics list and uh, maybe revisit it in a year or so and uh, see what it's like then when with the rest of his work. So. Mm. That, I guess, will wrap us up for today. And if you'd like to get in touch with us for these or any other reasons, then please do so. Uh, email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or on the Twitters at fudsonfilm. But until next time, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew will do too. I'll feed the horn. <laughs>